0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We eagerly wait with anticipation for the return of Jesus, when He will make everything wrong, right. In a way, He's always reigned over all things, but on the other hand, His saving grace has received pushback and rejection from the evil of this world. Join us in our new series, Thy Kingdom Come, his reign in our lives, where we'll learn what the reign of Jesus truly means for us believers and how we, as the body of Christ, can continue spreading his name until he If not, I would love for you to have the text in front of you, so maybe you have a Bible with you or a device, or if you're at home joining us, I would love for you to be able to see what we're going to be unpacking together as we kind of lean into this text and hear what God has to say to us this morning. So um, have you you ever had a piece of advice from someone uh, that you look back and thought, I really wish I had paid more attention to what they said? Maybe somebody gave you a good stock tip, maybe they gave you a good life lesson, maybe they pointed you towards something and you look back and go, ah, why didn't I really listen? One of the joys of being a parent is having this regular interaction with my children where I give them my wisdom, they tend to hear it but not listen to it, and then I get the report back of how their lives were affected. Right, they're in the midst of play practice and football, and often you'll hear me say things like, hey, you guys should take a snack. Don't forget your water bottle. Make sure you have everything for practice. And inevitably they come home several hours later, and oh, I forgot to get a snack. I was so hungry. Oh, I forgot my whatever you know piece of equipment it is. I was like, well, if you would only just listen. Right? The reality of our lives, I think for every one of us in multiple spheres, is oftentimes we can hear but not actually listen. This isn't just a problem for us when it comes to good advice that we receive from people. It actually can be a problem with us experiencing the greater and deeper reality of God's kingdom. When Jesus began his ministry, he came announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand, that the rule and reign of God was now breaking into the world through his life and his ministry. The backdrop of all that Jesus says and does is the announcement of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God in the scriptures is really the vision of the world under God's reign, a world of flourishing and justice and righteousness for all people. The kingdom of God isn't just a nice spiritual idea. It's not just the idea of, oh, heaven, or someplace else. The vision of the kingdom is a vision of how the world is to be in all spheres of life. Social, economic, personal, relational, vocational, all of it. And Jesus is clear that what he has come to do is to restore the kingdom under his rule and reign as king, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, you would think that that announcement would actually be welcomed news. In fact, Mark labels it as the gospel, which just means good news. And it is good news because we all have an aching for the world to be more than it is. We, we look around and we see the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of our lives, and all of us long for something more. And so Jesus comes to announce that he's brought that something more, that he's reestablishing the way things ought to be. And you would anticipate that people would receive that warmly. And yet that often isn't the case. In fact, if you just read through the first few chapters of Mark's gospel, you can see that already there are lots of different responses to the claims of Jesus. Last week, we looked at a couple of them. Some that said he was crazy, others that said he was dis- demonic. So why, if Jesus brings such good news, are, these, are there all these sorts of responses to what he's saying and teaching and bringing? Well, this morning, Jesus is going to help us not only understand why there's so many different responses in the gospel of Mark, but he's going to also help us to think through how we respond to what Jesus has brought. Because what we're going to see in our text today is that ultimately Jesus's reign, right, the kingdom of God is experienced. I changed that word so just you note it. It It's experienced through our response to his word. We're in the midst of the series that we've called Thy Kingdom Come where we've been looking at Jesus' ministry in the gospel of Mark to see how you and I can experience the reign of Jesus in our lives and begin to experience God's vision for the world, that vision of flourishing and righteousness and justice in all spheres of life. Mark is a gospel of action. So if you're a little ADD like I can be sometimes, you like the gospel of Mark because he's constantly changing the scene. One of his favorite words throughout the gospel is simply the word immediately. It was this, immediately this, immediately this, immediately this. And as much as we can jump from one scene to the next, these aren't just random, but actually structured and connected stories that are really meant to help us see two larger realities. First is who Jesus is and the very nature of his kingdom, but also what it actually means to follow him. What does it look like to experience that reality in our lives? Last week when we left Jesus, he was in a house, challenging what it meant to actually be someone that followed him and made him Lord. But here, as we pick up the passage, Mark quickly changes the scene. You're going to see it right away in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Right? So we note here, Mark makes a shift where he's been showing us experiences of Jesus. Now he shifts to the focus of Jesus's teaching. And Jesus moves. He wasn't a house, but now he moves beside the sea. And he has a very large crowd, right? People were interested in what Jesus had to say. We see crowds surrounding Jesus's ministry throughout the gospel of Mark. And because the crowd is so large, Jesus wisely decides to set up his own amphitheater, right? he leaves everyone on the land and he journeys out slightly into the sea so that as he teaches his teaching can be amplified to the crowds and he begins to teach them the text says verse two many he teaches them many things in parables i want you to note that word for a second and then and in his teaching he said to them listen So, as Mark begins to move us towards the teaching ministry of Jesus, he notes that Jesus' teaching are parables, which are stories that essentially make a point. And then he begins that section with Jesus' call to attention. That word that we see in the text, listen, is really the idea of pay attention. It's originally written in the present tense, which means it's meant to be an ongoing action. It's not just like, hear me once, it's like, Pay attention and listen, tune in. It's a call to spiritual attentiveness. And I want you to notice these two things because they really kind of set up the locus point for the rest of this section. We're going to look at really kind of what Jesus is doing by the parable he's teaching and as he then calls us to attentiveness. So I'm going to add a few points in your bulletin just to help us kind of walk through this structure, right? We're going to look at the parable. We're going to look at the nature of the parable. Of parables themselves, and then we're going to dig into Jesus's explanation of the parable. So Jesus launches into this parable then in verse three. Hear it again. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. So Jesus uses this parable, remember a story with a point, to essentially help his followers lean into the deeper reality of the kingdom. He draws his story from what would have been very common, uh, a common reality in their day, right? In order to plant and grow crops in Jesus's day, they didn't have the machinery that we had today, and so often their fields were sowed by hand, Many times in ancient Palatine, these would have been long, kind of thinner rows with paths laid out between. And so when someone went out to plant their field, they would take their seed and they would scatter it by hand along the paths into the fields in order for it to grow. And so Jesus notes that the sower goes out to do this very act. And as he does, these seeds kind of form into three different groups in their reality. The first group of seed falls along the path. The ground is hard the seed never actually enters into the soil, and because of that, it becomes easy prey for the birds to come and eat. The next group of seeds falls into rocky soil. Often in the Middle East, underneath the story is, underneath the uh, soil is often rock and dirt and limestone, and so some of those fields kind of have that under the surface. It might look like dirt, but it doesn't have depth, and so these seeds fall into that type of soil where Essentially, their roots aren't able to grow in to draw the nutrients and water from the ground. And so when the sun comes up, instead of photosynthesis happening, right, that's the way plants grow. Remember, science class will take you back for a moment. Instead, these plants are scorched, and they become toast. The last group falls into a field of thorns. This plant grows, but the thorn robs it of the resources necessary to bear fruit. The fullness of what is meant to grow out of the plant doesn't come because the thorns choke it out. So three groups of seeds. The fourth group, though, finds itself in good soil, Jesus notes. And in good soil, what happens is actually the opposite of what happens in the first three. Note, he says in the text, that it fell into good soil and produced grain. It produces what it's supposed to. How? By growing up. Right? This is actually the idea of sprouting is really the idea. So unlike the first seed that fell on the path and couldn't sprout because it couldn't enter the soil, this seed enters into the soil and is able to sprout. Not only is it able to sprout, it's actually able to increase It's able to root into the ground to begin to grow up. So it doesn't just stay small and shriveled or torched by the sun. It begins to grow. And in the end, because it's in the good soil, it yields or bears fruit. So this seed is the opposite of what happens with the first three seeds. And Jesus notes that these seeds produce three different types of 30, 60, and 100-fold in their yield. Now, in many ways, the parable is fairly straightforward. We may not all be farmers here. I don't know if any of us are. Maybe you are or not. I don't know. I'm certainly not. But it's easy enough for most of us to comprehend what Jesus is saying. And yet, in the parable, there is a deeper meaning. And so as Jesus teaches this parable to the crowds, he says at the end, verse 9, He who has ears, let him hear. And here, in this moment, we actually encounter the call of the parables the way Jesus says this, this isn't a suggestion. This isn't like, ah, if you want to. This is actually a call. It's it's an imperative. It's a strong call that anyone that would seek the kingdom, that would understand what he is coming to bring, that they need to listen. Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, well, who is that? Well, that's everyone. Everyone right? Everyone has ears to hear. That's the point. This is an invitation not to some, but to everyone who might be able to listen. But what's the call? Let them hear. The question isn't, are you hearing? The question is, are you listening? Because the reality is, to listen is to experience the kingdom. Not just to hear, but to listen. And the nature of the parables is that they reveal whether we are truly listening to what Jesus is teaching. Jesus goes on here in a moment. In a moment, he's going to give us an interpretation of the parables. But before he does that, Mark records a unique interaction that he has with his disciples discussing the nature of parables. Look at verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So note quickly, the scene changed. Before he's in the crowd, now he's alone. And Mark kind of brings up this interaction to highlight a couple of things. One, he continues the theme that we've seen throughout Jesus' ministry about the difference between those who are on the inside with Jesus and those who are on the outside. Those who are just part of the crowds that surround him and those who are part of the committed, those who follow and seek after him. And so Jesus begins to speak to those, note, around him. to the the ones close, who are committed, the ones who are following him. And Jesus says, to them, to you, has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. Those that follow Jesus have something that the crowds don't. They have the secret, the deeper reality of the kingdom. Right, one commentator makes this note about this secret or mystery in Mark. He says, in Mark, the mystery or secret concerns the kingdom of God, or more specifically, the kingdom of God as it's described in the parable's discourse. What is that? A present form of the kingdom that is growing, but a hidden reality on earth until the final coming of the kingdom in power. So the kingdom, the secret of the kingdom, is the reality that the kingdom is present in Jesus and can begin to be experienced now, and will be fully experienced one day. So those who are on the inside, those who are close to Jesus, who are following him, they can begin to experience that reality now. But those who are on the outside, and here we have in mind those who have rejected Jesus. Don't forget the scribes and family members who said he was crazy or demonic before, Don't forget the crowds who flock to his teaching but are unwilling to step deeper into his reality. What Jesus says to them the teachings are given in parables so that they may indeed not see, they may see but not perceive, hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So when the disciples come and they say, Jesus, why do you teach in parables? Jesus doesn't come back and say, oh, I teach in parables because they're really good illustrations. They actually really help you connect with your audience. They make the point. They're funny. They're engaging. Right? Parables aren't just like, oh, this is kind of like a masterful lesson in how to teach people. Jesus' point is the parables are uniquely given, and I teach in parables because they reveal something. They reveal whether or not you're actually listening whether or not you actually desire what I come to bring. I don't think the point here that he's trying to make is that the nature of parables is determinative in their reality, but that it actually reveals their reality. That he teaches in parables because parables either cause you to lean in and listen or to turn and walk away. They reveal whether you're listening or not. Like, have you ever... um, maybe think of parables like this. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and you begin to question whether or not they're really paying attention to you? No one look at their spouse. That's not allowed. But have you ever been in that moment? And so I don't know if you've ever done this, but like you'll throw in something absurd to just try to see if they're actually listening. It's like maybe you're having a conversation about work and you're kind of talking through things and at some point you see their eyes glaze over and they're looking and they're watching the TV behind you in the restaurant and you say, oh, so and that's when my boss gave me a check for a million dollars. And they're like, whoop. Right? It's, It's like the statement to kind of test, are you tuned in or not? That's what a parable is. A parable is, are you tuned in to the deeper reality that I've come to reveal or are you tuned out? Those that are committed to Christ, they're tuned in. They come to Christ seeking and desiring to understand what he has to say. The crowds who are disinterested, they get the parable but never experience the deeper reality. And that's the whole point. The nature of parables is they reveal our heart's response to the truth of the kingdom. Remember Jesus' invitation from the very beginning of Mark. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. But then he calls for the way that we experience the kingdom. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is repentance? Repentance just means to turn. It means you're headed in this this direction and you turn in this direction. It's a 180. And Jesus says to experience the kingdom, you must turn from the life you're living and turn towards my reality. And not only turn towards me, you must trust me. Which means to follow, to have a level of commitment to me. So to experience the kingdom actually requires a turning from our present false kingdoms and to trust in Jesus as king and the kingdom that he's bringing. And the parables then reveal where our heart's at in that process. Have we turned and are we seeking after Jesus? Or are we still committed to ourselves and our false kingdoms? And Jesus then is going to go on to explain this parable to show this is exactly why there's all these different responses to me. And I think in it, he's going to ask us the question, even as he leans into the explanation now of the parable, where's your heart at? Where are you when it comes to my kingdom? Are you listening? So Jesus begins his explanation with a question in verse 13. He says to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So Jesus recognizes in this moment that even those that are close to him do not have an understanding of the parables that he's speaking. Now, this is a theme that you're going to see throughout the Gospel of Mark, that the disciples, they just, they just struggle to get it. That They often, they, they just constantly fail. They're kind of bumbling through the following of Jesus, Now, I actually think that's an encouragement because I recognize my own bumbling when it comes to following Jesus and my own struggle. And so Jesus says, you don't understand? You don't get it? Well, how are you going then to understand? How will you understand then what I'm teaching and the deeper reality of the kingdom? I think this is an ironic question because how do they come to understand the deeper reality of the kingdom? Well, Jesus is about to explain it. He reveals it. So the only way you experience the deeper reality of the kingdom is by following Jesus. He works to reveal it to us. It's a reminder that our discipleship and experience of the kingdom is not achieved by our intellect, our wisdom, our insights, but it's only achieved by tuning ourselves to Christ. It's as we follow him that the truth of the kingdom is revealed to us, and we begin to experience that reality. So Jesus is saying, of course you don't understand, but you can if you would follow me. And then he goes on to explain what it looks like then to follow him and to begin to experience the reality of the kingdom. And he essentially unpacks this parable to focus on the reality of our hearts. Note the parable again. Here's what he says. The sower sows the word. So the word here is the word of God or the word of the kingdom. It's the message and teaching of Christ as he is what all scripture points to and reveals, right? The sower sows the word and that is what Jesus is doing. And where does the sower sow the word? Everywhere. The radical nature of God's grace is that the word of God is sown all over the place. It's not sown to a select few. It's not sown to the spiritually elite. It's not just those people who have unique insight. The word of God and the access to the truth of the kingdom is sown liberally and abundantly. This is the nature of the grace of God. The seed falls on all sorts of places. But note in the parable what the variant is. The sower is consistent and the seed is consistent. The sower sows it, and the word of God. But what produces and experiences the reality of the kingdom? The nature of the soil. And it's that that Jesus wants to focus our attention towards to ask that question. Where's your heart at? What is the soil of your life? Is it open and receptive to the reality of my kingdom or not? And so he goes on to draw the connection between the reality of these soils with our hearts and the reception of the word that he has come to proclaim. The first soil, he notes, are the ones that fall along the path where the word is sown. Verse 15, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So the seed of the word is sown, and the first path or the first heart that Jesus notes is that sometimes the word falls on the hard heart, a heart closed to his kingdom, a heart that has no interest to actually see and experience the deeper reality that God has come to bring. Sometimes in the self-focus of our lives, in our pursuit of the world, we actually trod in the paths of our hearts so much that they become antithetical to even being open to the truth and reality of the kingdom. We hold on to our intellectual understandings, oftentimes uh, to absurdity. We focus so much on promoting ourselves that we never could imagine actually submitting to another vision for life. And when we do that, Jesus says the truth is clear. There is an enemy at hand ready to snatch the truth of the kingdom from us, thus that we never even experience a moment or reality of that kingdom instilled within our lives. And sadly, this is much of our world. Harden against the truth of the kingdom so that when the invitation comes, we're already closed off. There's a story of Thomas Paine, the great philosopher who was radically anti-Christian and anti-God, that when he was dying of an ulcer, two Presbyterian ministers came to proclaim the gospel and invite him to trust in Christ. But facing his imminent death, Pain brushed them off, told them to get away, but the ministers were relentless. And so they came and asked again, do you wish to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Here's a man on the brink of death with the invitation towards a life of eternal flourishing in the kingdom of God. And he famously answered quite distinctly, this is from Christopher Hitchens, he notes this, I have no wish to believe on that subject. And then Hitchens notes, he expired with his reason and his rights, still both staunchly defended until the very last. His reason and his rights. Sometimes we hold so stiffly to our self-centeredness that we're not even open to the way the kingdom can break in, even at the face of our impending death. We're robbed of its glory. But there's a second heart that Jesus notes the rocky soil, verse 16. He says, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, but they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Right? The seed sown on rocky ground has no roots. It has no ability to draw the depth and truth of the reality of the kingdom into its life. Thus, it grows quickly, but when pressure comes, quickly dies off. For Jesus, this is the shallow heart or the careless heart. Here, the truth and reality of the kingdom is neglected. It receives it, but yet it remains in its self-focused state thus that it never digs its roots deep into the truth of the kingdom and the proclamation of God's word and what he has come to reveal. And so when tribulation comes, which is a word that Jesus uses for the general trials of life, or persecution, direct opposition to his kingdom comes, it falls away. It doesn't experience the flourishing life of the kingdom because it has no roots. I think this is a life that comes to Jesus thinking he's going to give them the answer for themselves, but never directly wants to surrender to his lordship over their life. I remember several years ago I was uh, in the in a library looking for a book, and so I went into the Christian religious section, and I was looking down the rows, and they had like all the tabs that kind of give you the direction of what section is what, and I'll never forget I looked, and there was a tab that stuck out to me, and it simply said Christian self help. I thought that's ironic. The very essence of Christianity is a surrender of oneself to the lordship of Jesus. It's to recognize you're not the king, and he is, and to give yourself to his kingdom. And yet, I was reminded in that moment, there is a version of Christianity that will receive Christ, but seek to keep ourselves on the throne. Yeah, I'll take some Jesus, but I'm going to remain in control. So I'm not going to dig in to the truth of his word, to the truth of his reality, to the depth of who God is and what he has come. I'm going to maintain a little Christian self-help, that really Christianity is about my self-actualization, me being the best version of me. But the problem is when that happens and when we adopt that philosophy, when suddenly Christianity doesn't seem like I get my best life now, When suddenly the trials of life come and I'm not healthy and wealthy and prosperous and perfect, man, then I'm out. Because I'm not in Christianity for Jesus. I'm in Christianity for me. And if you're in Christianity for you, listen, you're going to hit some times in your life where life's going to get hard. I mean, a couple weeks ago in our Elijah series, we talked about the reality of the wall. Everyone hits the wall. Everyone hits points of suffering in our lives that cause us to question, what is God up to because he doesn't seem like he's up to my best interest right now? And the reality of the wall is it does not leave you in neutral. It causes you to either lean into the reality of Christ to see that he really is worth your life. He really is the answer to continue to lean in, right? When, when the disciples were facing that reality and Jesus comes and says, everyone else is leaving me, will you leave me too? What does Peter say? No, you're the one who has the words of eternal life. We have to stick, right? You either lean into that reality or you peace out. And I've been a pastor long enough and been around the church long enough to see people who come in, they're hyped up, they're pumped up for Jesus, but at the end of the day, their heart is still focused on themselves. And as soon as life doesn't go their way, Jesus is the first thing to be given up on. And Jesus says, that's because our hearts are shallow. You cannot experience the kingdom with a self-focused reality. Finally, Jesus reminds us that there's another group that does not experience the reality of the kingdom. Those those sown among the thorns, verse 16. They're the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But, and so Jesus gives this third heart, right, this third reality. Not the shallow heart or the hard heart, this is the distracted heart. In this heart, the kingdom is neutralized. Its resources are robbed. Its enemy is the world that comes in and chokes out the life of the kingdom that's meant to flourish and bear fruit. What chokes out and robs the resources of this person? Well, Jesus makes it clear. It's the cares of the world. It's being distracted with making the world your priority alongside the kingdom. It's the deceitfulness of wealth because nothing promises the flourishing life like more money. We think it's the answer. And we pursue it. Often at ends that compromise our very selves. And then Jesus gives this blanket term, the desire for other things. Things contrary to his ways and his kingdoms. The distracted heart is the heart that wants the kingdom of God and the world. It's the heart that says, I want Jesus and you fill in the blank. I want Jesus and success in my job. I want Jesus and a good family. I want Jesus and the American dream. I want Jesus and you put it here alongside. And so, yes, I'll lean into Jesus, but I'm also going to put my time and my energy and my focus and my talents in these other things as well because, yeah, I want some Jesus, but I also want this. So you have a dual vision or a dual focus. And Jesus notes that when that's the case, what actually happens is the care for those things, the priority of this thing, it comes and it chokes out the kingdom in your life. It robs you of the resources and the joy and the flourishing that God wants you to have. This is why Jesus would teach in his most famous sermon. He would remind his followers, you can't serve two masters or you will hate the one and love the other. You can't prioritize Jesus' kingdom and prioritize the world. When you do that, one of them has to give. And you know what's the first thing to be given? The kingdom of God. And we wonder why we don't experience it. I think we have to be very, very careful of this soil. Because in our American suburban culture, we are very prone to the lies of the world that distract us from the reality of the kingdom. We're given a lie, and then we're given the resources to pursue that lie. And the lie is, the more I have of the world, the better my life will be. And we buy into it hook, line, and sinker. sinker. We're distracted constantly with the vision and promises of the world. We give our time and attention To all sorts of things and neglect attentiveness to God's word and God's ways in our lives. We think, yes, the kingdom and all of this. Because we think we need more of something, that my kids need more of something, that my life needs more of this experience or this reality. And so, therefore, I need to make sure I have that alongside the kingdom of God. And what happens is the kingdom doesn't capture our imaginations. Something else does. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's sports. And none of those things are bad in the right order. But when you put those things alongside or above the kingdom of God, it robs you of the flourishing life that God has for you. It robs you of having a heart that experiences the peace and joy and love and goodness that he desires. But the good news for you and I today is we don't have to have that kind of heart or be that kind of soil. Because Jesus reminds us there's a fourth type of soil. Verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Here we find what we would note as the fertile heart. Because in the fertile heart, the kingdom is nurtured. It's attended to. It's a heart that seeks to cultivate the kingdom. In the vision of Mark, these are the ones who remain with Jesus. They're different from the crowd because they're constantly with him, hearing his teaching, engaging him, seeking to live it out. And it's there that the kingdom is experienced. It's in this response to the word of God that we begin to actually experience the vision that God has for our lives. But what's different about this soil? What is the thing that helps this group experience the reality of the kingdom? Well, it's very key. There's one word that you have to look for. Remember, note the variable in the story. What's the difference between the last soil and the other three? It's not hearing the word. They all hear the word. It's how they respond to it. They accept it. Now, that's an interesting word, right? In the original language, that idea of accept, it's the idea of embrace. In fact, one Greek dictionary defines that word as to embrace with assent and obedience. It's to receive it in a way that says, I acknowledge it as true and I seek to live it out. You see, it's not indifferent. It's not distracted when it comes to the word. It's not seeking to look at the word for what it can get out of it. It's not a heart that's so ingrained in itself it can't even actually begin to dwell on it for a moment. No, this heart embraces the teachings of Jesus. It embraces the word of God. It seeks to bring it in deep. And as it's both exposed to the word and embraces the word, it becomes effective in that person's life such that it begins to transform them and they experience the reality of the kingdom. If I were to give you what's the key that I think for how we can have the soil of our lives to experience the kingdom, it's simply this that the good soil is attended to. It's attended to. It's given focus and time and energy and resources. This, this is the nature of how plants are grown, isn't it? Like, so, um, at the beginning of the summer, if you came to my back deck, which I love my back deck. We get the privilege of living on a hill. It's big and open. It's, it's gorgeous. One of my favorite spots in my house. If you came to my, black, my back deck, um, Alicia loves greenery. And so, we had these green plants that are strategically spotted around the deck to kind of bring some life and foliage and all of that to the back deck. If you came, it would have been green, luscious. You would have been like, this is a nice little paradise back here to enjoy some sunshine in the Michigan summer, which is about the only time we get to enjoy sunshine. So, you got to, take it for what it is, right? If you came to my deck now, you would think this wasn't a green luscious paradise, but that I was like living in a desert somewhere with the amount of brown that now surrounds my patio setup. They're dead. No life, no fruit, no anything. Why? West well, we stopped attending to them. Summer got busy. We got distracted. We had other things. I somehow turned into a human taxi service just driving my kids around points of Farmington. I know every route to every place at this point. And we stopped watering, making sure they got sun, making sure they had what they need. We stopped attending to the plants, and because of that, they never bore the sort of fruit and greenery that they were designed for. And friends, if we're not careful, this can be the reality of our souls. When we stop attending to the word of God, when we stop giving it priority and placement and focus and energy that it needs, then we do not experience the kingdom in the way Jesus intended. Remember, his reign, his kingdom is experienced through our response. And in order for us to respond well, we must be attentive That's why Jesus' call throughout this whole thing is, listen. If you have ears, hear the one who hears my word and receives it. This is the one who bears fruit. The whole thing is a call to spiritual attentiveness to the word of God. And so I ask the question, are you listening? Are you listening? In your life, are you listening to God's word? But unfortunately, I think it's so easy for us in the busyness of our culture and our world to be distracted to fill our time and our lives with other things I was reminded this week of a story that pricked my heart a couple years ago and I think caused me to ask the question of what am I giving my time my energy, my attention to it's a story written by John Ortberg who's a pastor Was a pastor for many years. And in his book, Soul Keeping, he shares the story about he was a pastor at a very large church in Chicago at the time, full of ministry and super busy. He was feeling drained. His priorities scattered all over the place, and so he called up his spiritual mentor at the time, a man named Dallas Willard, who was a pastor—or I'm mean, sorry, who was a professor at USC for many years—and I think one of the great theological and spiritual thinkers of our day. And he asked him, "What, what do I need? How can I stay healthy? How, right? How can I bear the fruit of the kingdom? How can I experience? That's, that's the reality. How can my soul flourish amongst all these things?" So he was on the phone with Dallas, and he asked him, and He said, there was a long pause with Dallas. There was always nearly a long pause. And then this is what Dallas Willard told him. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Somebody turned that into a great book title, by the way. He said, I quickly wrote that down. And then he said, okay, Dallas, I've got that one. Now, what other spiritual nuggets do you have for me? I don't have a lot of time, and I want to get all the spiritual wisdom from you that I can. And Dallas said, there's nothing else. He said generously, acting acting as if he did not notice my impatience. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Why? Because hurry takes our attention off the word of God. We're so busy that we don't pause to give it the attention and focus and energy that it needs. And to ruthlessly eliminate hurry is to reprioritize our attention back on Christ and on his word. And it's there, it's there that we experience his kingdom. It's there we experience a soul that flourishes despite the pressures and persecutions of the world. It's there we find a singular focus and purpose for our lives that bring meaning to every sphere that God calls us to step into. It's there in attentiveness to Christ and his kingdom, by his word, that we find what we need to nourish the very essence of who we are. Ortberg notes later in the text, in reflecting on the reality of the parable of the sowers, He says that a soul can be saved but it will take softness and depth and space and the world won't help much. See, Jesus is inviting you to spiritual attentiveness this morning. He's inviting you to stop the busyness of your life, the hurry of your heart and listen to his word. And as you do that now, And as you do that regularly, it's there that you find the reality of the kingdom and the life that you were designed for. And it's also where you find that life isn't about you, but it's about a king and something far greater, his kingdom. So are you listening today? I pray that you are. In fact, let me pray for us right now. God, we confess in light of what we heard today. I confess how easily my heart is distracted. How hurried I can be and how I fail to give you and your word the attention that is required. And yet I'm reminded, Lord, right now that the invitation of this parable is, and the invitation of your kingdom is one of repentance we have the opportunity to turn from our vision, to turn from the false ways that we so easily give attention to other things far less than you. And that out of your grace that holds us where we are and invites us into the life that you designed for us, we can begin to turn back to you. So Lord God, would you Help us do that. Even now as we just prepare to respond by declaring together the reality that Jesus is better than anything that this world has for us, than any high or any low. Would you use it as a way to fill our minds with the truth of your kingdom, to fill our visions with the reality of what he came to proclaim? And would you use it as a way for all of us to take that step towards prioritizing his word, his reality, his kingdom, his truth. Maybe we haven't been doing that, but here, God, we have an opportunity even together to do that. So I just invite you, Holy Spirit, right now. Would you do the work of cultivating the soil of our heart in this moment? We want to be good soil. We want to experience your kingdom. And in so many ways, that just begins with that simple process of repenting and trusting afresh in you. So even as we respond in worship, would you help us do that, I pray. And we ask this in Jesus' good name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org to introduce yourself today.